following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. asked me to do, it became really glaringly obvious that when you just read through scriptures, especially the Sermon on the Mount and blast right through it, nothing really jumps out at you. Nothing really sticks. Oh, the Sermon on the Mount, that's, that's really nice, very poetic. What a cool thing. But when you really take it, slow it down, things begin to pop. It's like a hedgehog. You, you, did I get my thing here? A hedgehog, maybe. You can go there. Yeah, like a hedgehog. You pass a hedgehog at 100 kilometers an hour down the motorway. It's, oh, yeah, it's, it's not impactful. It's kind of cute as you go through. But if you stop and slow down and get out and examine that hedgehog and maybe even pick it up to check it out, ouch, you're going to get poked by at least one or two of those quills, right? And in the same way, when we slow down on these Sermon on the Mount scriptures, things begin to jump out. We begin to get poked by the quills of God's word. And like Reuben has been saying from the very beginning, he says, it's going to be tough today. <laughs> and so I'll warn you again, if you came for kind of a feel-good sermon, uh, maybe this is not the place for you today. This is going to be challenging, especially no more so than for me. It'll be personally challenging. I'll, you'll understand in a little bit. Um, so I think we're going to get poked and convicted by the scriptures a bit today. So Lavinia, if you could come up and just read through our passages, and then we'll go from there. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, 
and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Put it there. Thanks, Lavinia. All right, well, <clears throat> excuse me, so jumping right into it then. Verse 21 says, my clicker's not going to work, so you'll have to go with it. It's one of those things that worked in practice. If you can get verse 21 up there. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago. The reason it didn't say, you've read what it says in the scriptures, da la da la da la. And the reason for that was because the, the common people of the day and, and the disciples, they only were speaking, and if they knew how to read, it was Aramaic and Greek. It was only the religious people, the scholars, the scribes and the Pharisees who could even read the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. And so it was only for the scholars. So the common people and the disciples, because they couldn't read Hebrew, they only knew what the law said by what the scribes and Pharisees told them and their interpretation of it. Verse 21, excuse me, yeah, 21, the second part. It says, so you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and that anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And one might ask, well, what kind of judgment? What were we talking about? Well, back then there were three judgments or sentences, if you will, for murderers. One, on the one level, there was execution by beheading, which was put by the, the, the minor courts that were spread through all of Israel. Beheading by the sword, execution by the sword. The second one was stoning. They could get stoned to death by the 72 judges that provide, presided over the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. They would enact that sentence and people would get stoned to death. The most extraordinary for heinous crimes of murder was when they'd actually take them and burn their bodies in the valley of Hinnon, the Ben-Hinnon the, the ben Valley, in Jerusalem there. Now it's, it's debatable whether that was ever actually practiced. But it was reserved for some heinous murderous crime. So the tradition of the elders was that as long as someone didn't physically actually murder someone. They were obeying the law. They were doing okay. Alright in the sight of God. Pretty clear. Except as with the other things that we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus brings this right to matters of the heart. Recall, if you were here last week, the last scripture that Pastor Reuben brought, it says, Jesus told the crowds, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, which were all just outward observance of the law, they thought they were doing pretty good. Unless your righteousness exceeds those, he says, you're not going to enter the kingdom. So verse 22, next one there, he says, but I tell you, now let me pause for a second. As an apologist, I have to pause here. Jesus said, I tell you. That was kind of an implicit claim to deity. You see, because everybody else said, you've heard what the law said. You've heard what Moses said. You've heard what God said. Yahweh said. But Jesus is the only one said, I tell you. Verily, verily, I say unto you. He was claiming equality with God that he could make pronouncements and declarations. Jump off my apologetic back into the sermon. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother or sister will be subject to to judgment. Now, let me insert a caveat, a stipulation. If a person never gets angry, never loses his temper, I think he's going to be more like a vegetable than a man or a woman, than a real life human being. I mean, really. Anger is a God-given emotion. And the, the, the Bible says we can go ahead and be angry, just not sin. Yeah? 
What is the Old Testament filled with but examples of God's anger? He flooded the earth in the great flood of Noah. Jesus displayed anger, I'm sure, when he, when he drove the money changers out of the temple. He said, you made it a den of thieves and robbers. He was angry at the Pharisees for, for you know, their hardness of heart in Mark chapter 5. But every time the son or the father got angry, it was a righteous anger. It had a righteous and just cause in front of it. Unlike some of the things I. I'm not going to point at you. I'm going to point at me. Unlike some of the things I get mad about. Uh, God's anger. Righteous anger was only slowly provoked. It's under control. It wasn't reckless. It wasn't explosive. And God takes no pleasure in his judgment and his anger. Unlike sometimes we do. Opposite to this then. James says there's an anger of man that doesn't work the righteousness of God. It doesn't achieve the righteousness of God. It falls short. A lot of times we think there's a righteous indignation. No, it's just us losing our temper. It's just us getting mad. At least that's what I do. Now, in the English, anger can have varying connotations. Uh, there's different degrees of anger. In the Greek, there's actually three different words that all translated as anger. The least severe is porogismos. It's more about an irritation, an exasperation, an annoyance, a mosquito's bothering you. That's parogismos. Small things bother you. Your computer keeps turning off or whatever. That's, well, it might be more than that, but it's, it's an annoyance, right? Um, parents are encouraged not to exasperate their children, porogismos. I think it should have been only fair that the scripture should have said children should not exasperate their parents either. But I, I didn't write them, so we deal with it. The second Greek word for anger is thumos. And thumos means to flare up. It's a quick-tempered type of anger. Kind of like the flaring up of a match. When you see a match flare up, um, boom, it's a, it's a thumos. It'll come up in a second, hopefully. But when a match flares, that's a flare-up thumos type of anger. So... Words like rage, I don't know if the next slide will go there or not. Words like rage are, are, are an equivalent to this. Uh, having a short fuse. Um, it exhibits no self-control it, or no, no self-discipline. It just lashes out verbally or physically. How many have ever met somebody with road rage? How many have somebody in your home with road rage? That's a thumos type of an anger. My dad, uh, my stepdad throughout my life, he had terrible road rage. I mean, I was afraid he was going to have a heart attack or an aneurysm. He'd get so mad. He's going to drive somebody off the road. Uh, I know he swore some people off the road before, practically. Terrible road rage. There was a guy that once got pulled over by a police officer. And the officer asked him for his registration and his ownership papers. After he produced him, he says, can I ask what I did, officer? He said, well, back there at the intersection, you're yelling and screaming and giving obscene gestures and bumping your horn and cursing and swearing. And the man said, well, yeah, but that's not against the law, is it? He said, no, but I looked on the back of your car and there was a Jesus fish there and a follow me to church. And what would Jesus do? And I just naturally assumed the car was stolen. <laughs> Things that don't go together, Right. Paul admonished the Ephesians in the next scripture. If we can go to the next one, well, that's the match. And the next scripture, there we go. I think I got control again. He says to the Ephesians, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. The third word for anger in the Greek is orgisos. It'll come up in a minute. 
or Jesus. It's the third word. And it means a burning or a brooding anger. A brooding, a simmering anger. A smoldering, smoldering anger. It reminds me of the lava. If you look under Rangitoto, if you could go down there, the lava, there we go, the lava would be there. I'm starting to have a smoldering because my PowerPoint's not working. No, I'm kidding. But you look down at that magma, it's a brooding. It's bubbling. It's always there just under the surface. And once in a while, it comes to the surface. It'll percolate up to the surface there. Boom. We see it manifest. In the same way, a brooding, smoldering anger that's always there. You ever met somebody who's just always angry under the surface? Smoldering. And sometimes it erupts and comes out of the surface. That's the orgizo anger. Now... Paul admonished the Ephesians. He said, don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, not to go to bed angry. Now, we think about this. Well, well, hang on a second. Sometimes it's good to go ahead and get a good night's sleep on something. You don't want to call somebody at 10 o'clock at night when you've worked up in the middle of the day and you're tired from a long day. It's not a good time to talk it out, even with your wife. I, I think sometimes the best time is to get a good night's sleep, a fresh perspective, a calm in the morning. So I think what this is more saying is, don't, don't keep going to bed angry every day and waking up angry every morning. This orgizo type of anger that's going on and on day after day. That brooding, it's a problem. So back to the text then. The teachers, the scribes and the Pharisees, they taught you shall not murder. And that was true enough. Yet, the problem was, the implication was anything short of murder, anything that wasn't physical murder was okay. To them, the law was just a matter of external bodily performance. Whatever I can see you do or not do, that'll judge, you know, how well you're observing the law. They basically destroyed the sixth commandment. They shall not murder by um, limiting its range just to physical acts. So if no one was killing, no one was breaking the law. They erred not recognizing the spiritual nature of the law. The true intent of the law was, as Reuben has pointed out, always towards the heart. Always towards the heart. Paul stated in Romans 7, he says, We know that the law is spiritual. It wasn't just a matter of outward rituals or what you're doing and not. Jesus didn't set himself against the law, as Reuben pointed out a few weeks ago. He didn't, he didn't you know, put himself against the law but only the superficial, surface interpretations of the law. He actually told the Pharisees they had nullified the word of God by their traditions handed down by their elders. So Jesus corrected their teaching, making, making it plain that not only those who commit the act of murder are guilty or in danger of judgment, but those that, that had anger, those that had murderous intent in their hearts were in judgment. He was making it crystal clear that God is more interested in your attitude than your actions. Well, just as, I should say, just as interested in your attitude and your heart as he is your actions. Now, I don't want you to go away thinking, well, Jesus is saying that anger is just as bad as murder. He wasn't saying that. Obviously, if you physically murder someone, the ramifications are much more far-reaching. Yes, it is a sin, uh, but the, the ramifications on this planet, if you get caught, are far more reaching, and, and, you know, the dead person, on and on. But what he was saying is that, that God judges both anger and murder in the heart as sin. So it's as if the religious community had drawn a boundary. They'd drawn a boundary that they wouldn't cross, and, and their boundary was, we get that? There we go. Their boundary was murder, Exodus chapter 20. 
We will not murder. Put that on the inside there. And they were proud about it. We don't murder anybody. Right? Because they were thinking that, that anger was a lesser sin. That's just a minor thing. God doesn't really care much about that. And it was interesting to note that the law actually brought that out. In Leviticus 19, 17, it says, Do not hate your brother in your heart. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. That's Old Testament times there. So Jesus, in essence, redrew that boundary. He made it bigger. You can go to the next one there. He, he enlarged the boundary to include sins of the heart, anger. And sometimes I know I can tend to draw these artificial boundaries. Oh, this is not that big a deal to God, but boy, this is something I will never do. We draw an artificial boundary up here. And God says, no, no, no. I'm really interested in your heart. What are you thinking? What are the issues of your heart? He enlarges those boundaries for us. He really does. So ask yourself, where in your life, maybe some of you are manifesting anger. Do you have, driving down the road, do you have road rage? Even though nobody's in the car, you're swearing or cursing or angry. It's an anger problem. Like I said, I used to think my stepdad was, uh, he actually said one time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to weld me some bull bars on, around my car and I'll run into people. I go, oh, dad, you're crazy. He was that angry on the road. Do you, do you feel yourself constantly seething on the inside, constantly angry about something, boiling with an orzizzo type of anger? Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your boss, your workplace. Maybe it's yourself. Maybe it's your life. Think about that. Is there a brooding anger? Are you angry most of the time? When you're dealing with your spouse or with your children or with others that test your patience, is there a flare-up anger? Do you flare up them? And, and the sad reality is it's oftentimes it's the innocent people around us, the people that we love the most that take the brunt of our anger. We have a hard day at work with the boss. You're not going to tell him off. He's your boss. Even your workmates, you want to keep a, a cordial work environment. So you just kind of let things go. And maybe a few people cut you off on the way home. And, but by the time you get home, that long, that fuse just has burned all the way down. And sometimes we just uncork on the wife, on the kids. And they're the innocent ones. So if we've got anger issues, we've got to work those through. I love what it says in James on the next one. It says... It says, my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak or tweet or email or respond <laughs> and slow to become angry. And so I thought I'd Google it. What are some symptoms of an angry person? Because I'm not a, a, a psychologist, psychologist or counselor. I, you know, what are the, the symptoms of an angry person? And several websites came up with a list of them. You can flip this up here. Take the anger test yourself. Do, do small things bother you more than they should? Are people like, what are you so angry about? What, why are you so worked up? They just cut in front of you. Maybe it was an accident. What? Are people around you saying, what's the deal? Do you yell a lot? Or maybe if not yell a lot, do you fume a lot? Making everybody in the room uncomfortable. I used to be under the impression that I could get as mad as I want as long as I wasn't yelling at my wife or yelling at my kids. You know, I, I turn the wrong way and I'm driven 10 kilometers. I'm like, well, I'm not yelling at my wife. I'm not mad at the kids. Well, I'm making it uncomfortable for them. The room is really uncomfortable. And sometimes in my, if I get stressed, I can make it uncomfortable on people around me at times. And thinking, well, I haven't lashed out at them. Well, that, that might be an anger issue we're dealing with. Do you love to criticize everything? 
everyone. That's the way my stepdad was. Do you constantly judge people? And again, this is what Google says. You know, Google knows, right? Are you constantly sarcastic in your attitude? Do you feel victimized all the time? I wouldn't have put this one together, but it was consistent in that. Angry people feel victim that somebody's always done them some kind of wrong and they're angry about it. Do you act in a juvenile manner when you're angry? Have you been accused? Start acting like a child. So if you've answered yes to several of these questions and perhaps God is placing his finger on something today. Maybe you've got poked by one of those quills that I was talking about. Maybe God's saying, let's deal with this. If you've tried to deal with it on your own, maybe today's the day you're going to say, God, I need some help. I need some prayer. I need some accountability. I need some professional counseling. Nothing wrong with that. We've got several in the audience today, counselors that, that, that can help work through. What is the root of that? So sorting out your, our, our anger is not just for the benefit of, of those around us, although it is that. It definitely is going to make the world around you much better. But it's for our own benefit. I love what the, the novelist Louis L'Amour astutely noted. Louis L'Amour said this. He said, there he is. Anger is a killing thing. It kills the man who angers. For each rage leaves him less than he had been before. It takes something from him. Louis L'Amour, he wrote long before, what was the guy, Lee, that did the Hulk? Um, Stan Lee that, that, that did those, that series. He wrote before him. But think about the Hulk. He would get angry and rage. And then when he was coming down, becoming a, a normal man again, man, he was wiped out. He was exhausted, physically exhausted, emotionally exhausted, vowing, man, I can't, I can't Hulk again. I can't do that again. And that's what rage and anger does to it. It takes from us. We feel ashamed. We feel it just takes from us. It really does. And I know it may seem like impossible or it may seem extreme, but ungoverned anger, unmanaged anger, undealt with anger, that can actually lead to physical death. Death doesn't happen in a vacuum. Murder doesn't happen in a vacuum. People have anger and they lash out. I mean, who was that, that, that singer, Marvin Gaye, who was killed by his own father in anger? Why, Abel was killed by his own brother in anger. Let me ask you about something. When did Cain, if you look at, the, look at the picture, when did Cain first sin? Was it when he struck down his brother? Or did God judge him as sinful before when he had this anger simmering in his heart? When he had these brooding or jizo emotions flowing that were unchecked? He had these vain imaginations that he didn't deal with, right? So then Jesus enlarges the circle again. My next scripture there. It says, again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, just like anger in and of itself was not a sin. Jesus got angry. The father got angry. Using the word fool isn't either a sin by itself. <clears throat> You're going against the word of God? No. What did Paul say? You foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? You've begun in the spirit. You're going to you know, be made completed by the flesh. James. He says, you foolish man. Do you want proof that faith without works is useless and dead? Even Jesus, believe it or not, when he was on the road to Emmaus with those people. 
He could, who couldn't see the truth of who he was. Uh, he said, how foolish you are and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So we have scriptural examples well, saying that in it of itself was not sinful. There's no real exact English equivalent to the word raka. And so they just left it in the Greek in the Bible. In the New Testament, raka is a, is a Greek word. Spelled a little bit different but pronounced the same. Now, some commentators and some lexicons will try and make a fine distinction and say that raka means like nitwit or, or you know, idiot or stupid, stupid person. And, and fool was moros, where we get the word moron. This is worthless one. But it seemed to me that the more I read, the more I studied, it seemed that there was no absolute clear distinction or difference between the two. But rather, the meaning of both, just like in our language, depends on the context from which it was said, from the heart from which it was said, right? So rather than trying to find a real nuanced little difference between rock and fool, it's safer to assume, I think, that, that God judges the heart attitude from which we say something, whether they're said with a smile and a laugh or whether they're said with the narrowing eyes of content, you fool. There's a difference with that. I mean, how many of you remember Mr. T back in the 70s and 80s? I pity the fool, right? I pity the fool that, falls, that drops out of school or whatever. It was kind of a light-hearted, funny thing. If you went to Camp Rag the night, hey, fool, get over here. Stop goofing around. And we laugh, and it's a funny thing. My heart is not meaning that. But when you narrow your eyes with contempt and disgust, it implies the worthlessness of the other person, a condemnation. You've crossed the line into a sinful heart attitude at that. I mean, some of us have absolute contempt for the people of the political party we don't like. The policies are fair game, but the people are made in the image of God, by God, loved by God. We some, sometimes have contempt for the people that differ with us on the vaccine issue. Not what they think, but them. They're evil. They're fools. They're worthless. They're worthy of condemnation and judgment. Be careful. You're talking about the apple of God's eye. You're talking about a person who Jesus died for that God would love to have relationship with. People have different religious views and whatnot. My, my son-in-law and daughter-in-law, they're here today. And he and I have differing views on different things. Strongly differing views. But yet we still have a relationship. Yesterday we went on a bike ride together. Well, I tried. He piked out after two kilometers saying he had to go, you know, by Nikki and the kids and stuff. But we have a relationship. One time we were dialoguing on email about some issue we disagreed with very sharply. And he said, look, I'm going to stop, stop now before I say something I regret. I appreciate that. He valued the relationship more than being right. We can do that, can't we? So... Unfortunately, the internet is a purveyor, a purveyor of this attitude of anger and hatred and disdain towards people that believe other than we do. The internet is filled with trolls that, that, that are filled with, you fool, you flippin' idiot dummy, and it's, it's invective. It's vile and vindictive, and that's not a Christ-like attitude. We can disagree with the policies and the beliefs of people, but they are people for whom Christ died. So watch your attitude. Be mindful of the websites you're visiting. What kind of an attitude are they provoking in you towards others? It's not neutral. Those, the, the internet and Google, they have your algorithm. They know what pushes your button. They know you're a human being and love to get enraged a little bit. So if it's fear-driven or anger-driven or hatred-driven, hey, put it away. 
Put away all filth, the Bible says. And that's what it is sometimes. Did I mention this wouldn't be an easy message? Selah. So if we want to be under the throne of mercy, then we've got to show people mercy. If we want to be under judgment, then all we have to do is judge other people as worthless, as items of contentment. Wow. And now for the section that I really got personally gouged by. The hedgehog got me and made me all bloody. We'll go to the next scripture. Verse 23. Therefore, I'm going to get a drink so I can clear my throat. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your gift. Now, don't, don't miss the connection between, between anger, between fool, between offering the gift uh, at the altar, between offending a brother, as though they're unrelated. If you drive by at 100 miles an hour, they seem unrelated. You slow down a bit and think about it. Why would my brother be offended at me? Because in my anger, I said something. I did something that offended them. Okay? That's why they're angry. Both aspects get covered. If you're angry, deal with it. Let God deal with it. If anyone's angry at you because of something you said or did, get that straight as well. It says when you're going to the altar, that might not mean much to us. In the Old Testament, they brought a sacrifice, an animal to the altar, and that could be killed instead of them for their sin, their wrongdoing. Here, we don't offer Animal sacrifices, we offer sacrifices of praise. So it's talking about, it could read this. If you're in church and about to start your praise and worship service and there remember that your brother or sister has something legitimate against you, leave your gift at the altar and go be restored to that person. Now, it should be obvious, should go without saying that the verse is not saying that we need to or it's even possible to be on good terms with everybody. For instance, there might be somebody that's angry at you and you, have no, you just have absolutely no idea. You're unaware of it. And so you're not responsible for that. You might have come out of an abusive relationship. Physically abusive. Emotionally abusive. Spiritually abusive. And in those instances, our obligation is to forgive and make sure our hearts are not filled with bitterness and malice and anger. We're not brooding and simmering over them, Right? But not to reestablish the relationship, especially if it was toxic. Toxic relationships, they kill your soul. These are the people that always take from you and leave you just feeling just awful about yourself. Or there might be people that are offended against you and you know it, but, but for absolutely no good reason. Just a senseless thing. Jesus had lots of enemies in his ministry time. He had people that wanted to kill him. They hated him so much. But... It wasn't from anything Jesus did. Jesus just spoke the truth. So he didn't go running after them and chasing them down. Oh, no, no, I didn't mean it that way. I didn't mean to offend you. No, he let the truth just lie where it was, right? So if you and I, if we tried to be reconciled with every single person that had anything against us, we'd probably spend our whole life doing so. That's not the application here. So while I'm talking about legitimate grievances, people that have legitimate grievance against you, Right? We, we humans, you know, it's not the ridiculous one. We humans, we in our human fallen nature, we tend to justify ourselves. We really do. 
we tend to defend ourselves. We try to pass the problem off on them. That's their problem. I'm 100% in the right. They're 100% in the wrong. That's, that's fallen humanity. Maybe I'm just preaching at me. I know I can tend to do that, right? Um, we can tend to think, well, it's their problem. They need to sort it out. They need to come and apologize to me. They need to get stuff sorted out with that. And you know, in some cases that's true, but we err on that a lot. I, I err on that a lot. That's them. It's a them thing. It's there. I, I'm more like Jesus than anybody I know. Maybe that's just a me thing. So, the Holy Spirit is always prompting, should always be prompting our hearts to examine our hearts. What broken relationship out there can I take some responsibility for? Should I take some responsibility for? How could I have said something differently or done something a little differently? Do I need to make a proper acknowledgement for my bit? And that means without making excuses. Well, I did this, but the but is bigger than anything else, right? I did this, but you did, or comparing. Well, I did this, but you did this, or justifying, or, or whatever it is. Can we just own our stuff? It takes us to humble ourselves. Ouch. There's another gouge, isn't it? Do we need to make restitution? If you wrong someone financially, can you restore it? Are they still alive to do so? If you owe them a debt or if you've injured their character, if you've spoken bad about them to their face or to others, do you need to rectify that? Make that right. Is someone under a wrong impression of you? And you know they are. You know they think you've slandered them. They know, you know they think you've done them wrong. Do you need to go and explain that? Look, I know this is what it looked like or whatever, but blah, 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 blah. Have you done everything? Paul got to the heart of it in this scripture. I love this. In Romans chapter 12, 18, it's our next verse. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's tough to live. In other words, make sure you've done everything you can do to make relationships right. So this last set of verses here, it, it makes plain how very, very important relationships are to God. Reconciliation is to God. That reconciliation, making a bad relationship right again, takes priority over worship. It says, first be reconciled to your brother. Not after you get your worship on or whatever. First be reconciled to your brother. Leave your gift at the altar. In 1 Samuel, it said, to obey is better than sacrifice. It was true then. It's true now. God doesn't want your wonderful worship that you're offering up until you get the relationships right. Usually the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. We learned that in geometry and mathematics. In this case, the shortest distance between you and God, you and your fellowship with God, you and your acceptable worship of God might be first to your brother. You might have to go and in turn and go be reconciled with your brother. You can get the next slide up there. So our our horizontal relationships affect our vertical relationship a lot more than we think. They really do. Our love for God, excuse me, our love for others affects our love for God. Look what it says in the verse in 1 John. It says, anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot, cannot, it's impossible, cannot love God whom he has seen. And he's given us this command. Whoever loves God must, not should, not it's a good idea. It must also love his brother. 
I mean, think about it. If you saw somebody choking uh, someone else in the back of the foyer there before service started, my choking. If you saw somebody choking somebody out there, and then the music started, they said, oh, we'll have to finish this later. <laughs> and go, and they, and they go and raise their hand as though that's an acceptable sacrifice. How ridiculous, right? You can say yes. But you know I'm coming for you with a bar. But how ridiculous, God says. Well, how ridiculous you think that you're going to hate your brother, have malice, and not talking to your brother, those around you, and yet you're going to be right with me? Hmm. The psalmist nailed it in his heart, and he said like this. David said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Plain and simple. So, reconciliation, making relationships right, is a priority for kingdom living. It's a priority for kingdom people. If God can find it in his heart to be reconciled through Jesus with us, with me, wicked vile, angry, murderous heart people. You might say, well, I've never murdered. I'm not as bad as Hitler. You can compare yourself to whoever you want, drawing a circle, but Jesus draws a larger one and says, your heart is filled with, you fill in the blank. He looks right at our heart, and that's why we were separated from God. He sent his son to die on that cross as Easter approaches so that we could be reconciled to the Father. We could have a relationship with the Father, genuinely, our sins being dealt with. So, it's a priority. There's needlessly broken relationships out there, and I'm sure that it grieves the heart of God. Reconciliation requires us to humble ourselves. Not excuses, not justification, humble ourselves. Okay, how can I humble myself? God humbled himself and became a man and let the world crucify him. What can I do to humble myself? And dig for this and work for this. And it's not something that's easy to do. It's something that's very hard to do. Sometimes it seems like it's impossible to do. I've been encouraged by Reuben and Donna and some around me to share my story. This is where it gets tough for me. See, I actually thought Reuben had set me up. I said, Reuben, I'll help you preach. You know, it's hard preaching every week. It's hard preaching in general. He preaches every week sometimes last year. I'll help you. Yeah, I got a few scriptures for it in the Sermon on the Mount. It's this one. Oh, did you set me up with this, Reuben? Honestly, did you set me up knowing the drama I'm going through with my family? He said, honestly, I didn't. I honestly forgot what you told me. I told him two years ago. So I can't help but to believe this is God that's having me up here. So here goes 100% vulnerability. It's easier for me to get up and talk about what if Jesus had never been born. And I'm proud we're Christians and stuff. But this stuff hits really close to home. So, a bit of my story. When I was two, yes, I'm going to drag you from two years old. When I was two, my mother uh, remarried, got divorced and remarried. My stepdad was a really harsh individual. My sister and I, and, and seven years later, our, our half-brother, they had kids, mom and, and stepdad did. Um, we, we had a tough, dad had a flare-up temper, like I said. Um, he would have ticked most of the boxes, if not all the boxes, on the little red anger test we went through. Beyond that, he was vengeful and vindictive and accusatory and, and just plain old mean-spirited sometimes. Not an easy man to be around. Even as a married adult, this is when we were kids, as a married adult, on several occasions, he would make harsh comments, rude comments about me, about our ministry, about my wife, and many times, I just wanted to write him off. I don't need this in my life. I don't need this in my life. I just, 
I don't need to talk to him anymore. Because the phone calls were all one way, me to him. But I just couldn't stomach the idea of me sitting in church, raising up my hands here in New Zealand, and him sitting uh, at Newport Beach in his church, raising up his hand. Yeah, he went to church every week. And yet we hadn't talked to each other for years on end. It was like the scripture that Timothy said. He says, therefore I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands without anger or disputing. You can say, I might have had an overly tender conscience. I don't know. But that's the way I felt. And so time and time again, I would try and make peace with him. Apologize to him for any micro offenses that I might have given him. And explain any wrong impressions or ideas. I mean, he was under the idea and going around telling the family, Don and I had just, had just, we pretty much just come to live here in New Zealand. We were no longer doing ministry work here. We were just here on a big extended holiday. And those of you that know this much about our ministry, we work very hard and very long hours. We've got 20 years of newsletters to prove a little bit otherwise. So this pattern continued until January of 2021. And I hope I'm not boring you, but that's, that's when dad died. And we were in what I thought to be good standing then. In January 2021, I could have got up, hand on heart, and said, I have done everything I can or could have done to keep this relationship. I really could have. You know, I wish I could promise you that, that every effort to restore or repair a relationship would end up happily ever after. But unfortunately, it's not the case all the time. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is a happily ever, but not always. Out of the grave came one last dagger right to my heart. You see, my dad, when he died, he was worth about six and a half million dollars between his house, beachfront property on Newport, his stocks and other assets he had. When I received the copy of his last will and testament, I was stunned, but not completely shocked. As he said, he had left a half a million dollars to his pastor, who he had never even had a cup of coffee with, no relationship with. He left a half million dollars to an old workmate. He left another half million dollars to his nephew. And my sister, it says, she and I were purposely omitted from the will. Ugh. As you can imagine, it took a while to process that one. That was right about the time I had met Reuben. So, Reuben, how you doing? Yeah, yeah, put your pastor's hat on, man. I need to vomit to you. <laughs> I really did. And so, I went, obviously, from shock to grief to sadness, to, to, to anger, and hopefully to forgiveness. Hopefully that's where, where I'm at with him. And like I said, I wish I could promise that every time you worked and did your best to work for a relationship, that it would, you could say, and we all lived happily ever after, like a, like a Disney fairy tale. I can't promise you that, but I can promise you three things. That, that if you make every effort to make relationships right, then number one, nothing's going to hinder your ability to fully worship God, fully connect with God, Fully encounter God in an unhindered relationship, in an unhindered way. Secondly, you can walk with a clean conscience knowing I've done my best. I've done what the scripture said. The, re the relationship might not be right, but I've done what I could do. As far as it depended on me, I did it. And thirdly, I believe that on, on that day, you're going to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy that my father has before you. Now, my stepdad is, is gone. Did I do it right? Did I waste my time? I'm not sure. That's in the past. If the story ended there, it'd be bad enough, but it doesn't. You see, my sister and my half-brother and I, we had decided a while ago that dad, if in his anger when he died, if he was angry at any of us, 
and, and penciled us, erased us out of the will like we know he sure could have done. We said, we'll make it right. After he dies, we'll just, we'll just sort it out. We'll just divide it all three ways. That's what we decided. I told you how about a million and a half went to all of his significant others, but I didn't tell you that the rest of it, about $5 million, went to my half-brother Skip. In the will, he said, I leave all the rest to my only adult child. Wow. You can imagine the shock and the disbelief when my brother said, no, I'm, I'm keeping it all. Not even a dime to my sister and I, our kids or anything. I'm keeping it all. And so he and I, and you might think, well, you probably weren't a very good big brother to him. <laughs> you probably gave him, gave him wet willies and wedgies all the time. <laughs> Hand on heart, I, I did the best I could with him. I taught him how to ride a bike. I taught him how to, how to you know, throw a football. I, I was a spiritual example. He even said many times as an adult, man, I really look up to you. Such a spiritual example. He even wanted to send his autistic son to here so we could live with us because I'm more of a grace-filled man. So I just don't know what happened with that. I haven't spoken to him in two years. Now you know why it was so hard for me to get up here wrestling with that one. I'm going to stand up here like a hypocrite. Do I need to have relationship? To me, it was like, okay, he chose money over relationship. He chose that fortune over brotherhood. That's, that was plain and simple to me. There's a little more to it, but that, that was the bottom line of it. Wow. Now, it is absolutely my responsibility, just like with anger, to get rid of it. Right? It's my responsibility to deal with it. Make sure I'm not bitter with him and angry with him. And just like with anger, it's for my sake. It's for my sake. Jesus finished up the, the, the series saying, make friends with your adversary quickly. Otherwise, he might take you to court and throw you in prison. Because guess what? Bitterness, anger, unforgiveness are like being in prison, only locked from the inside. You lock yourself in. I love what Max Lucado says. You see the, uh, what he says up there. He says, when you forgive, the prisoner is released. And that prisoner is you. So, I got to make sure I'm there. But I also do have to make sure I'm free of the responsibility from calling him and, and, and trying to reestablish that. Now, Reuben has said, I think you're clear, bud. My wife says, oh, you're clear. The people I respect in my life that I ask, said you're clear. But the bottom line is this. Everybody, everybody in this church could tell me, nah, man, you're, you're off the hook on that one. I think you've done what you could do. I think he's made his choice. But I'm not answerable to you. I'm answerable to the Holy Spirit and my conscience. I've got to wrestle that through. I think God in his mercy, really his mercy. Just this last week, my sister hadn't talked to him, my half-brother, in two years either. He called mom's house. My sister was there. Terry gets on the phone. They're talking. And man, from his mouth were such vile invectives, F-bombs and swearings and terrible false accusations against her against me, against my biological dad who didn't have a card in the game. And it was just as if God was saying, now, this is a toxic person, Todd. This is a toxic person. This is, you can't expect to have a relationship with this abusive person because he'll abuse you. I mean, for the first time in two years, I didn't sleep at night. I had a pit in my gut. I had a headache. I never get headaches. I said, now this, yeah, thanks God. I, this is truly toxic. God the best I can do for him is pray for him. 
pray for. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not there yet. I pray that David's invective, Lord, my enemies, smite them, oh God. No, I, I'm just not there, but I know where I, I need to get with that. And so, you know, I'm sure I could point to any of you guys out there, any of you. You could get up here and tell a story as bad or worse, and nobody knows the trouble I've seen. I, I'm sure of that. I'm sure of that. Um, but listen, my, my employ, imploring to you, we're going to take communion in just a bit. And Sam, if you can work your way up here, you can get my, my other slide back up. I don't want to finish with prison. Um, we're about to take communion. It's a perfect time for us to search our hearts and ask, do I have a smoldering anger in me? Do people around it recognize me and I'm just denial? Do I have a flare-up anger? Do I need some help? Do I need to talk it through? Do I need to come up and get prayer? Do I need to get counseling? Do I need accountability? Someone once said, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. It's not going to change unless you do something about it. Are there relationships that are needlessly broken and estranged? Have I done everything in my power? Everything I can? Have I humbled myself to try and break, uh, restore these relationships? What can I take responsibility for? What do I need to ask forgiveness for my part? You know, some of you would say, Jesus is Lord. That's easy to say. It's easy as a bumper sticker, but it's harder sometimes to live. Close your eyes. I'll pray for you, and then we'll take communion after that. Jesus, we thank you for these words. They're very difficult medicine, but good for our soul. God, we've wrestled with the hedgehog of your scripture, and some of us have been a bit cut and convicted. We pray. I pray for the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to help us to put these things into practice. Give us the courage and the strength to do something about what we've just heard and read rather than just going away thinking it was a nice sermon. Give us grace today to search our hearts as we take communion now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.